Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. This is the word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're so grateful for your word this morning. Uh, You know what each of us needs to hear, and we just pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, through the preaching of your very word, that you would affect the messages that each of us need to hear in our own situation. For your glory, the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Kent Hughes suggests that we need the theological wisdom and honesty of the little girl who had a huge fight with her brother. When her mother came in and pulled her off of him, she said to her daughter, why did you let the devil put it into your heart to pull your brother's hair and kick him in the shins? The little girl thought for a moment and said, well, maybe the devil put it into my head to pull my brother's hair, but kicking his shins was my own idea. (laughs) She reminds us that we are very capable of being evil all by ourselves. However, the flesh or our own sinful nature is only one aspect of the evil triad that we find in the scripture. The other two forces the system of the world, and the evil one, or the devil himself. There's a huge battle going on, one that has been raging from the beginning. In our next three sermons, to close out Ephesians, we will be focused on Christian warfare. Paul begins, verse 10, finally, because Christian warfare is the concluding theme of his letter. Today we're going to be considering the background and reality of this war, the nature of our enemy, and finally, how we prepare for this battle. Consider the context here in Ephesians. We've seen God has seated Christ at his right hand after his victorious work that we just sang about, his work of reconciliation on the cross. He's seated in authority over all power and rule in heaven and on earth, most especially over the power of the evil one whom he defeated in that great work. All these evil forces are now exposed to the wisdom of the cross. The way in which all things will be reconciled or brought back to right as it relates to God, his justice over evil and his love and mercy toward those whom he has saved. We've seen walls come down, walls between Jew and Gentile, 
walls between all kinds of divisions and people groups. Well, Satan would like nothing better than to rebuild those walls. Walls between each other, even walls between us and God as he casts doubt on our salvation and tempting us to sin, destroying the communion that we have with each other and with God. John Stott says it this way, does God intend his reconciled and redeemed people to live together in harmony and purity? Then the powers of hell will scatter among them the seeds of discord and sin. That's where we are in Ephesians. Who is it that seeks to ruin and undo what we've been reading and studying and rejoicing in over the last several months? Well, in a word, Satan. Now, C.S. Lewis wisely wrote about two errors we can fall into when it comes to our understanding of Satan and demons or fallen angels, which is what demons are. On the one hand, we can have an excessive interest in demons and the devil. We can ascribe every, every possible problem to the devil's work. If Satan is your universal cause for every issue, then we fall into that error. However, the equal and opposite error is to ignore Satan altogether. Or as Lewis puts it, we can have excessive interest or excessive disinterest in the devil. In our own first world materialistic Society, I don't think there's any question that our default error is excessive disinterest or our tendency to ignore or dismiss the devil's involvement in our world. I think this error is exacerbated in certain theological tribes like our own, perhaps, that have a strong emphasis on God's sovereignty. In our first message in Ephesians chapter 1, I spoke about the Apostle Paul's balance in his own life and ministry between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I think the same could be said about Paul's balance between God's sovereignty, human responsibility, and the role of Satan and demons. And we do well to learn from him. We tend to view our lives as consisting of almost exclusively two dynamics. Our activity and God's activity, and that's it. We completely ignore, at times, the demonic realm. So perhaps these next few weeks, as we close out Ephesians on this topic, will be, will be particularly helpful for us. There is a vast, unseen reality of spiritual forces that are at war with God and his kingdom. So first, let's consider number one in your outline the origin and history of that war. When God created the heavens and the earth, angels were heavenly beings included in that creation. And like the rest of creation, we're all very good. But when you come to the fall of man in the garden, Satan had already fallen at that point, taking the form of a serpent. So sometime after creation, goodness but before the fall of man, a certain number of angels went into rebellion against God and afterward identified as demons. We're not told a lot about this in the Bible in terms of detail, but we can discern that Satan or the devil is the chief of these evil beings, these demons. So these fallen angels, including Satan, were already enemies of God when Satan takes the serpent form in the garden. Like God, these fallen angels 
are spirits only, not material. Also, like God and like us, they have agency. That is to say, they think and act in our world. Unlike us, fallen angels are not redeemable. They were already fallen when Adam and Eve fell in Genesis 3, and they are unaffected in that sense by the fall. They're not groaning with the rest of creation for redemption. We're told by John that Satan is a murderer and a liar from the beginning. Not the beginning of his existence, which again was good, but from the beginning of the fall of man, and even as we mentioned before that. And then after the fall, we learn in Genesis 3 that the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent would be at war. Ultimately, the woman Eve is promised that her offspring would defeat Satan. And we see another, what was a cosmic war, now began another kind of war that proceeds throughout history, starting with Cain murdering Abel. First John tells us that Cain was of the evil one. He was the offspring of the serpent, in that sense, battling against the offspring of the woman. So right away, after this promise of victory by the woman's offspring, we see conflict. As Schreiner says, it is thereby apparent that the victory of the woman's offspring will be gained only through intense conflict. The triumph of the kingdom of God will be realized at great cost. And we see this theme throughout the Old Testament. The offspring of the serpent continues to battle and try to destroy the offspring of the woman. We see it in Pharaoh trying to exterminate the Hebrew babies. We see it in 2 Kings when the house of David was basically destroyed except for a a seven-year-old boy, Joash. When David's offspring were whittled down to a thread, Waltke says it was like a single candle flickering on a cake. The offspring of the serpent was so close to snuffing out the offspring of the woman. And of course, we see the ultimate offspring of the woman promised and manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, where we see all kinds of demonic activity, don't we? J.I. Packer says this, the level, of in, the level and intensity of demonic manifestations during Christ's ministry was unique, okay? having no parallel in Old Testament times or since. It was doubtless part of Satan's desperate battle for his kingdom against Christ's attack on it. In the ministry of Jesus when he was on earth, we see exorcisms, healings, resurrections, all sort of many parables of what he came to do, which was defeat the evil one. As Garrett says, as the kingdom of Satan diminishes, the kingdom of God grows proportionately. Every healing, exorcism, raising from the dead is a loss for Satan and a gain for God. And the decisive blow to Satan, of course, came at the cross, which is somewhat ironic because just like in previous cases in redemptive history where there's a reversal of what appears to be a victory for Satan, you may be familiar with certain forms of uh, martial arts where you use your opponent's strength against them. You turn their momentum back on them. That's part of the genius of the cross. God took all of Satan's momentum, driving to the death of Jesus, and actually used that to defeat him. He flipped the apparent defeat into a decisive victory displayed in his 
resurrection. He used that very momentum and aim of Satan to kill Jesus as the means to defeat him. Because by paying for the sins of his people at the cross, he removed Satan's ability to accuse and to hang the sting of hell and death over believers. And that victory was decisive, praise God. But there's more to come. There's a consummation of that victory that is yet future when Jesus comes again. To use the familiar World War II analogy, we are between D-Day and V-E Day. The outcome of the war has been determined, but the cleanup operations are underway. Satan is doomed, but he's going to wreak as much havoc as he can before he is ultimately cast away. That brings us to Ephesians and our current day. That's where we live in this tension. The outcome of the war has been determined by Christ's victory at the cross, but there are battles going on. There are people still getting hurt. Satan's still deceiving people and nations. Christ is enthroned, but his enemies have not yet been made a footstool in that sense. The rule over the enemies in this final sense is still future as we read about toward the end of Revelation. And this warfare is not an afterthought in the letter. Really the climax of Ephesians. It is all about this warfare. This is what the letter's been driving to, this battle plan. Paul has just shown us in chapters 5 and 6 with the, and 4 what the spirit-filled life looks like in relationships. Reconciliation between people, between groups, between members of one's own family, marriages, children. Hamilton says the Christian family is to be a showcase for the transforming grace of the gospel, especially its reconciling grace. No wonder then that the devil will do all he can to destroy that showcase. He attacks the family. And unity in Christ is attacked with division. You know, before you're a Christian, you're living in enemy territory, thinking everything's fine. When you come to Christ, your eyes are opened, you switch sides and enter the battle. So who and what are we dealing with here? Number two in your outline. Who is this enemy and what are their schemes? Let's read verses 11 and 12 again. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, What's the nature of this enemy with whom we wrestle? Well, it's not flesh and blood. It's not the people or things we see with our eyes. The enemy is spiritual and invisible. And in our, in our materialistic mindset in the West, this is really striking. We, we live in a culture that basically says if you can't see it or touch it, it's not real. So for our significant enemy to be unseen, untouchable, it is significant in the mental shift from the world in which we generally operate. Now, despite the threefold listing of rulers here, authorities, cosmic powers, this is not some kind of ranking or categorization, but probably just a shorthand way of referring to all evil powers. In, fa in fact, 
We're not told a lot about the different kinds of evil beings and how they relate to each other. But we're told as much as we need to know. Desmond Alexander says this, the Bible exists to give us a deeper understanding of God. It is not designed to promote knowledge of the enemy beyond what is necessary for comprehending the world in which we live and our own experience of it. Consequently, many questions remain unanswered about Satan. Another author points out, every biblical reference to angels, fallen or not, is incidental to some other topic. They're not treated by themselves. God's revelation never aims at informing us regarding their nature. Paul shows us here that encyclopedic knowledge about the devil is not needed precisely because Christ has defeated him and his powers. Our struggle with evil forces certainly matter, but we don't need worry about how the story will end. Christ has already secured victory, and we get to participate in that, both in our current struggle and also in our future celebration. So our struggles against powers that have already been defeated by Christ on the cross, they rule in the realm of darkness, but we've been transferred out of that realm eternally. However, as C.S. Lewis says, we currently live in enemy-occupied territory. That's where the Christian warfare takes place. Now, it's important to remember that our enemy has limitations. Unlike God, Satan and other evil spirits are not omnipresent. They can only be at one place at a time. That's why, despite the fact that Satan himself personally was very active, of course, in the ministry of Jesus, it's highly unlikely that Satan himself ever bothers personally with me or you. But there are many spiritual beings under his leadership and umbrella. And though they can never indwell a believer, since the Holy Spirit resides within us, Romans 5, they can certainly oppress believers. And they're also not omniscient. They, they cannot see in our hearts. And in the Gospels, you see clearly that Jesus did have insight into the hearts of people. Demons do not. However, Satan and his demons have been around a long time. He knows human nature really, really well. Ken Hughes says it this way, imagine how much smarter you'd be if you had an extra hundred years to learn. What if you had an extra thousand years to learn? You could really be something while Satan has had many millennia to study and master the human disciplines. And when it comes to human subversion, he is the ultimate manipulator. That's why he's very subtle and deceptive. He's never obvious. He tempts, he accuses, he deceives. And there's no code of honor from this enemy. As Stott says, they recognize no Geneva Convention to restrict or partially civilize the weapons of their warfare. They are utterly unscrupulous and ruthless in their pursuit of their malicious designs. So our fundamental struggle is not against flesh and blood. In the Middle Ages, this is where the Crusades went wrong. The misguided violence against people, that's not where we battle. For instance, in our day, when we get angry in, in, in against an unbeliever, even in, in, the, in the concept of evangelism, getting angry with, with someone and the things they say to you, that anger's misplaced. We don't struggle with them but with spiritual forces who are blinding them 
to the truth. Clinton Arnold says this, verse 12 is one of the best known verses in the Bible, yet one of the most misunderstood, misconstrued, and neglected texts of Scripture. Immersed in a culture that's, that, that says evil spirits do not exist, Western Christians struggle even to begin the task of spiritual warfare. We spend more time wondering if we really should believe in demons rather than grappling with how should we should respond to them. We may outwardly agree that evil spirits exist because the Bible tells us so, but in reality, it can make no practical difference in our lives. Going back to the example of evangelism, if we see evangelism that is not effective, we tend to think it's a matter of training or tactics, not some kind of powerful demonic interference to which prayer is the best course of action. So what are these schemes of the devil and his demons? From the very beginning, we see that Satan opposes God and tries to destroy his work. In Genesis 3, the Garden of Eden, Satan works to subvert God's will. He casts doubt. It's all about unbelief. He casts doubt on God's goodness. God's holding back on you with the fruit. Doesn't really have the best in mind for you. He casts suspicion on God's trustworthiness. Is that really what he said? He tragically convinces Eve and Adam, of course, with devastating consequences for humanity. But Gordon Wenham says this, Genesis 2 and 3 may be read as a paradigm for every sin. It describes what happens every time someone disobeys God. The essence of sin is rejecting God's commandments, preferring human wisdom or devilish wisdom to his. We see this with the schemes with Jesus from the devil. The new, the, as Jesus, the new Adam, as Satan tries to tempt him, tries to get him out of God's will, remember, distract him from his mission. We see the same thing today. These are well-planned attacks by a supernatural opponent against the church, against the believer. Suspicion of his word. Is that really what the Bible says about that? Can we really trust it? Maybe he doesn't have your best in mind. He's holding out on you. And they capitalize these Evil powers capitalize on our suffering, on our doubts, or doubts about God, doubts about our mission. And it's to our peril that we ignore or forget his schemes. Listen to Lloyd-Jones. I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All is attributed to us. We've become so psychological in our attitude and thinking. We are ignorant of this great objective fact. The being, the existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser, and his fiery darts. Now there are some people for whom evil powers are easier to understand than others. Those who have been in addictions or coming out of some kind of a cult type Practices. They can understand in ways that others can't the powers of darkness and the grip of that former life. We see it throughout history, perhaps most easily. The devil at work in the disobedient. Systems of grand deception with horrifying results. Think of Hitler and the Nazis. Millions of Jews murdered. Idi Amin, Noriega, Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden. In our own country, 
the slavery, the lynchings. You see a picture of a KKK members with white hoods over their heads in a church with a sign in the background that says Jesus saves. This, these are grand deceptions. You see it in the abortion industry who, like worshipers of Molech in the Old Testament, celebrating the killing of children in the worship of their gods. It's difficult not to get nauseous seeing people shouting and celebrating the killing of these unborn babies. Remember, don't get duped. It's not about those people. Don't get duped into thinking if those particular protesters were out of the way or kept their mouths shut, there wouldn't be a problem. No. It's not against flesh and blood. These are satanic forces. They deceive. They oppress. They blind. But these evil powers do not just operate in these broad societal historical levels. In fact, in the context of Ephesians, you could argue that Paul's primary thinking is that these schemes are most pervasive in the relationships he's just mentioned. Marriages. Think of the lies and deceptions attacking our marriages. You can't be forgiven for that. You'll never be able to overcome that habit. You deserve better than this relationship. God's holding out on you. God doesn't love you. Look how you're suffering. Satan's very satisfied to take you out of the battle with deception about your suffering, causing lapses into sin so that you are ineffective for God's kingdom, neutralized in the battle. All the enemy does is based on the opposite of truth. His work is predicated, fabricated in unbelief. And this has been true from the beginning. Snodgrass says this. This is, this is perfect. Christ has left the devil only what power unbelief allows him. That's what we're dealing with. Boyce suggests several contexts that Satan attacks the believer with deception. When a Christian's newly converted and not yet confirmed on the strong path of obedience, you're not really converted, are you? When a Christian's afflicted, if God really loved you, do you think you'd be experiencing this suffering? When a Christian experiences success, remember Peter, his heroic exclamation that Jesus was the Christ, immediately after he buys into Satan's lie about Jesus' true mission and that his own path to glory must also go through suffering. When a Christian is idle and lazy in his disciplines, think of King David on the balcony. When a Christian is isolated, you don't need the church. They're a bunch of hypocrites anyway. Think of the warnings that we considered in the book of Hebrews about neglecting to meet together, missing out on the mutual encouragement of one another. Repeating that pattern of isolation results in eternal danger. Satan loves to attack the isolated Christians. So that's our enemy and his schemes. What do we do? Number three in your outline, get ready for battle. It's helpful to remember the original audience in Ephesus, and Rick alluded to this last week. There was a, this dominant cult of Artemis of the Ephesians. And 50 other or so gods and goddesses. This was not just religious, but social, political, economic, to be sure. That's what the riot was about. Pervasive in their lives. Remember the riot in Acts. When, when Paul went into the arena 
People went crazy. There was a significant economic impact to this idolatry. We see it today in the vast monies connected to American idolatries. In Ephesus, this magic, witchcraft, sorcery was all very evident. Paul's saying, it's not what you're seeing. It's not the people you're seeing. It's not flesh and blood. It's what's behind it. This darkness that keeps people from seeing and responding to the truth of the gospel. So here in these next verses, this week and next, he reminds them of the enemy and affirms Christ's superiority. So letter A, remember your enemy. Verse 12, we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against these satanic forces. Now, of course we have physical struggles. That's not what Paul's getting at. Fundamentally, our battle in this life is spiritual. And in our culture, we're, dis- we're susceptible, I think, especially dismissing or ignoring the spiritual altogether. One way to kind of self-diagnose this, I do this from time to time on any number of theological issues where we can get off balance. It's sort of a barometer that I use. During your Bible reading, just take note as you're thinking through what's being written. What things are, are said that you likely wouldn't say? <laughs> Might be a, a, just a flag. For instance... When Paul says to the Thessalonians, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. I think I'd say, you know, we wanted to come, but the Lord is sovereign, which is true, of course. Paul says that kind of thing elsewhere. But are Satan and the demonic even part of our theology and practical life? We're more vulnerable to Satan if we dismiss him as irrelevant. Arnold illustrates this with, uh, say, a homeowner Found, somehow found out that a burglar was planning to, to break in on a specific night. He would lock, lock the doors, bolt the windows, secure things, have a security system in place, activated, call the police for help. But if the homeowner did not believe in burglars, he would wake up in the morning with all his valuables missing. We battle our own sinful nature, to be sure. We also have the world's system to reckon with, but co-opting both of these is Satan and his demons. Let's not be ignorant of his schemes. Think, think just in particular the scheme to destroy the reconciliation and peace that we have among believers because of Christ. In the second installment of Suzanne Collins' The Hunger Games trilogy, The Catching Fire, there is an important reminder, I think, for Christians as it relates to this unity. If you're not familiar with the series, this is a futuristic dystopia with those in power selecting candidates who are forced to compete in a fight to the death conflict, which is televised for a twisted form of entertainment. Before the game, one of the particular games began, a seasoned veteran reminds one of the candidates, don't forget who the real enemy is. This is critical because the candidate's natural tendency is to view the other candidates as the enemy since they're fighting for their own survival. It's only when they band together and remember who the real enemy is, those in power who are orchestrating the conflict, that's when they begin to experience real victory. This is our tendency too, isn't it? We find ourselves in conflict with those we love at home or in the church or arguing with, unbel- with, with believers on social media. 
We mistakenly forget who the real enemy is. Let's step back and remember there's an intelligent, strategic, diabolical enemy who loves to sow seeds of conflict in the body of Christ. He loves to undo the peace of reconciliation evident in the gospel that Christ has secured. So next time we find ourselves in a fruitless conflict with our spouse, our children, with another believer on social media, or those in our church family, let's remember who the real enemy is. May we band together in prayer for the fruit of the Spirit in each of us. In order that, 2 Corinthians 2, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Second, letter B, be strong in the Lord. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Not one of us has a chance against this enemy on our own. In our own strength, this battle would be a lost cause. But the good news, as John reminds us in 1 John, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We don't have our own strength. We need strength from the outside source to empower us by the Holy Spirit, right? Paul here is calling them to a relationship of dependence. Just like we're completely dependent on God for salvation, we're completely dependent on him to stand firm and battle the evil one. But this isn't a let go, let God. Even though the power comes from God, you need to grab hold of these resources, Laying hold of it, we'll see next week, in the putting on of the armor. This speaks to our position in the Lord. Okay, another way to say it, putting on the new self, as Paul says earlier. Appropriating that new identity that is yours. We're in Christ, but we need to put on Christ. Because of what Christ has done in redemption, adopting us as God's children, sealing us by the Holy Spirit, future inheritance secured, because of that, we're entirely new, no longer dead to sin and alienated from God, brought into this new community with other spirit-filled people in the church. It is in our relationship with the resurrected and ascended Lord that we find power. Because of our union with Christ, we participate in his victory. So be strong in the Lord. Another way of saying, put on the armor. Put on the new self, the armor of God. Be strong in the Lord. It's all hitting the same imperative. Back at the end of chapter 3, if you remember when Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now he can exhort them to be strong in the Lord with his mighty power. The same power we needed for the ethical demands that we saw, the love, the, the, uh, the putting off the old self, putting on the new, the relationships and one another we've seen in the last couple chapters, that same power is required for resisting the evil one. The Ephesians needed to know this power doesn't come through magical incantations and mystical rituals they were seeing in society but by the work of Christ on the cross. Even today, we can sometimes think about power over evil, like the exorcist. But that's not the right way to think about it. In fact, though in the Gospels, six times Jesus exorcised demons, and then twice by the apostles in Acts, 
Earlier in chapter 4 in Ephesians, when, when Paul talks about the ministries bestowed on the church, exorcism is not one of them. In fact, as Powelson explains, exorcisms are not part of spiritual warfare, but rather mercy ministry. We see this with Jesus, how often it was connected to healing and human suffering, not human sin. It is the cross that displays the power over the evil one. And that's why the Son of God came, 1 John 3, to destroy the works of the devil. John Gerstner, I think, has a helpful articulation. He, he summarizes the war with Satan in four great spiritual battles in history. The first battle, number one, Satan against God in the early history of the universe, which Satan lost. He cast out of heaven. Number two, the battle of Satan against man, Adam, without the God-man, Jesus, which Satan won, the fall. Number three, the battle of Satan against the God-man, Jesus, where Satan thought he'd won by killing Christ, but actually lost. And then fourth, the battle of Satan against man, Peter, who was joined to the God-man, Jesus, where Satan was also defeated. The chief contrast, of course, is the second and fourth battles. Man versus Satan without Jesus, Adam. Man versus Satan with Jesus, Peter. Adam seemed to have everything he needed to win. He was without sin, had every possible inclination to goodness, yet he fell. Peter, on the other hand, seemed to have nothing. He was sinful, weak, proud, vacillating. He even had the arrogance to tell Jesus, even if all fall away, I will not. But of course, he did fall. He denied the Lord three times, as Jesus predicted he would, yet there was more to the story, wasn't there? Jesus foretold Peter's defection, but remember what he added. Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Blow away with chaff. That, that's what Satan wants. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. In other words, Jesus told Peter, Peter, you are weak in yourself. Left to your own devices, you will certainly fall. You will be no more permanent than chaff when the wind blows on it. But I am for you, Peter. I'm on your side. Since you're united to me by saving faith, I've prayed for you. And because of my intercession, you will not be destroyed. Instead, you'll be strengthened. You will fall, but you will not fall away. You will be turned aside, but you will also be turned back. And when you do, you'll be a pillar of strength for the church. Likewise, brothers and sisters, our strength is found only in the Lord, who secured victory for us, who intercedes for us, who fights for us. Remember your enemy, be strong in the Lord, and finally, stand with purpose. Let's look at verse 11 again and 13. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. From verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. The purpose or goal is to stand. In other words, don't retreat, give up ground, stand your ground. Verse Peter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, James 5. Submit yourselves, therefore, to, the, to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Stand, resist. Don't seek out the enemy. Don't attack the enemy. That's crazy. Don't address the devil. No. Pray to your heavenly father. Theologian Graham Cole was asked, would you ever speak directly to the devil? I love his response. We are not on speaking terms. <laughs> so you stand, resist, don't surrender ground to the enemy. Now, how does the enemy get ground? How does he get a foothold? Remember chapter four, Alan Kember's message, uncontrolled anger, falsehood, stealing, abusive speech, anything that reeks of the old man, the old way of life instead of the new. That's how Satan gets ground. So off with the old. Put on the new man, same as putting on the armor, standing in the Lord's strength. So verses 10 and 11 guard against two opposite errors in our warfare. Verse 10, you can't do anything without the strength of the Lord. That guards against arrogance, self-reliance. But verse 11, with the strength of the Lord, you can stand. That guards against feeling defeated. Resistance is a defensive posture, but it's appropriating God's power to progress in eradicating the immorality in your life, the old man. Remember the illustration. You may remember the illustration I used in chapter three in the prayer of Paul that he wants, the Lord wants to fill you. Remember? It's, it's a progressive thing. You turn over more and more rooms, as it were, in your house to his control. So resisting is not just saying no, we must appropriate the truths of our new identity. That's putting on the armor that we'll see next week. In other words, to say it differently, we're not just in a holding pattern until Jesus comes back. No. We proclaim the good news. We proclaim victory in Christ to ourselves and to others. The truth of the gospel is how people are delivered. Christ is the victor. A few months ago, I was in Arizona where I heard a sermon on Romans 8 by a very gifted preacher. He was illustrating how we are not under condemnation at the end of uh, chapter, or throughout chapter 8 of Romans. And, and despite the enemy's accusations, we've been covered by the blood of Christ. And he used an illustration that uh, I think a, a, is appropriate for our passage as well. He illustrated this with a story of him playing basketball as a young man. Apparently, he was sort of a hothead. He always got in trouble uh, talking smack with his opponents on the basketball court, tried to get inside their heads, and they would try to get inside his head, verbal sparring as they played. Well, one game in particular, they were playing a team far inferior to his team. This guy's team was ahead by almost 100 points with, with a quarter left to play, just a blowout. Nevertheless, he kept getting into it with members of the other team. And the coach pulled him out and said, what are you doing? Look at the scoreboard. We're up by almost 100. It's over. Why do you let these guys continue to bait you and engaging them with their insults? And he was like, yeah, what am I doing? Why do I let them get to me? So he went back into the game. And when the other team started insulting him again, he felt that urge to respond, but he stopped and just said, scoreboard. <laughs> scoreboard. That's the attitude we need to have with our enemy. The evil one tries to get us down, speak lies to us, 
insult us, make us feel bad or unworthy. He's trying to get us distracted, take a different path outside of God's will, making us angry and bitter toward our brothers and sisters. We need to stand and resist and say, scoreboard. Jesus has won. It's over. I'm not going to get baited into these distractions from the truth, these lies, these temptations of my old life. I'm not going to get duped by his tactics. I'm not going to go into conflict with brothers and sisters. Jesus' victory is sure, and I'm standing firm. The enemy has nothing on me. Let me close with some words from Charles Spurgeon. Because we cannot see the enemy, sometimes we can get confused about the voices in our head, especially as it relates to guilt of sin and things like that. Which voice is the Holy Spirit? Which voice is the evil one? How do we know the difference? Well, Spurgeon says this. This is how you know the difference. In the first place, you may always be sure that which comes from the devil will make you look at yourself and not at Christ. The Holy Spirit's work is to turn your eyes from yourself to Jesus Christ. The enemy's work is the very opposite. Nine out of the ten insinuations of the devil have to do with ourselves, he says. You are guilty, says the devil. That is self. You do not have faith. That is self. You do not repent enough. That is self. You've got such a wavering hold of Christ. That is self. You've none of the joy of the Spirit. Therefore, cannot be one of his. That is self. Thus, the devil begins picking holes in us, whereas the Holy Spirit takes self entirely away and tells us we're nothing at all. But Jesus Christ is all in all. Then Spurgeon says this, Satan brings the carcass of self and pulls it about. And because that is corrupt, tells us most assuredly we cannot be saved. Remember, sinner, it is not by hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. Amen. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, we're so grateful for the gospel. We're so grateful for the victory of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we get pulled by the evil one into fighting with each other, into, into being tempted of our old self, may we stand and resist with your power, your strength, in your victory. For Jesus' sake, amen.